You're listening to the podcast of Shady Grove Presbyterian Church. The purpose of this podcast is to help you grow in your walk with Christ and apply his word to your life. My name is Ben Hine and I am one of the pastors here at Shady Grove. I'm joined by three other guests this morning. On my right, I have senior pastor Charlie Bale. I don't have any uh, creative welcomes for you this time. Also, the wonderful uh, Tammy Jones, who we'll be hearing from in just a moment, and uh, Becca Locos here on my left as well. And uh, so this morning, we're going to be getting into uh, Mark chapter two of this podcast. Uh, each episode, we will be going through the gospel of Mark with a new chapter. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention in episode one is that we're not reading the text um, at the beginning, and that's just kind of to save time. We're hoping that we're either being clear enough in our citations or our um, summaries that You'll kind of know what we're talking about, but if you have the ability to sit down with your Bible and listen with the Bible open, we, of course, encourage you to do that as well. But uh, hopefully we are being clear enough with you uh, as we get here into Mark chapter two of uh, where you can uh, focus your attention. So, uh, well, one of the things we want to do in this podcast is not just go through, um, you know, the gospel of Mark, but we also want to encourage you with uh, stories of testimony and what God is doing in the lives of his people here at uh, Shady Grove. And so, uh in the episode one, we heard from Becca Locos and her testimony and um, seminary and what she hopes to do with that. And so this morning, we want to hear from uh, Tammy Jones. And uh, Tammy, you have been a part of Shady Grove for a handful of years. And in your time here, you've really um, served so many of our church members, particularly our women, with your teaching gifts. And we've been really grateful uh, for how you've been um, serving our church in that capacity. And so uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your own testimony and uh, your story of coming to know the Lord? Thanks, Ben. I appreciate the opportunity to consider this because it makes me just grateful to the Lord. Um, in many ways, I was raised, I think, in a culture of Christianity, uh, but I still needed to see my need. I believe I was four years old sitting after church, and I don't remember a lot about it. What I remember is that the lady told us to stay if we um, saw a need for Jesus. And I remember playing with the hymnals with my feet. Mm. But I I remember that she um, pointed out that I saw my need for Jesus. Mm. And then um, I struggled with the security of what I, was I a Christian every time I sinned. I remember thinking I, I disappointed God. He mm. doesn't love me. Uh, when I was probably 13, uh, one of my teachers at my school just showed me the verses in 1 John that gave me certainty that mm. I may know that I have eternal life. Mm. And um, so that was a beautiful reminder to me of, of my personal walk with the Lord. And that continued. I, I was in a Christian school. I've been blessed with Christian parents and um, I went to a Christian college. So there was a lot of opportunity for me. Yeah. Um, but but it had to be it had to be taken. And yeah. so um, I now see that a lot of that was wasted, but God was so faithful to mm. pull me to himself. And I felt like even when I wanted to not be a Christian because it was just not cool when you're 13 <laughs> or 15. Um, yeah. but but God's plan for me was so much bigger and he was so gracious to, mm. um, yeah, to, to call me to himself and yeah. to, to hold me fast. Yeah, absolutely. Calls you just like uh, we saw in chapter one with the disciples. He calls you and you follow. Uh, that's beautiful. So, 
uh, as a Christian, what have been um, some of the most significant moments of spiritual growth in your life? I was able to work at summer camp between my years of college, and the Lord used that time to uh, get me way out of my comfort zone, uh, in away from home to into places that that was just uh, I was concentrated in a Christian environment in a different setting, and um, whether it was a waitress or a camp counselor, that was a time that I remember um, looking back on. I know, and actually. One of those years, I met my husband's sister, hmm. who then introduced me to my husband on a blind date. So really, summer camp is very dear to me. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, another time of spiritual growth was when we were told we were having twins. Hmm. And they were high risk, and probably one or both of them would not survive. Hmm. And I said to the doctor, I, the, no. No, this there's no twins in my background. Like there's no reason for me to have twins. And um, I remember the Holy Spirit just prompting me saying, no, you don't got this. Mm. I got this. Like, you know, I was ready to have a baby and be a mommy, but I was not ready to <laughs> give all that over to the Lord. And yeah. uh, because I, ha I was totally out of control. Yeah. So that was a huge jump. And when I look at my children, even now, 15, actually, yeah, 15 and a half years later, I'm just reminded that I don't got this. Mm. You know, I yeah. mean, they can remind me of that very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> but um, that was a reminder way back then. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's that's beautiful. And you, you mentioned uh, your twins there. And so I was going to kind of ask you a pop quiz question. <laughs> um, you know, married, uh, mom of three boys uh, in quarantine, COVID. What has that been like for you and your family? And spiritually, how has that been for you and your family? Well, it's kind of an opportunity to get to the raw people, you know, the reminders of, of uh, who we are and the things we struggle with. In some ways, I think it's been beautiful because my children have each other. They're 13 and 15 and 15. So there's a lot of um, playtime outside. Yeah. You know, they have friends built yeah. in. And that's for better or for worse. You know, yeah. they're still brothers and they can love and hate with the best of them. But for me, I think there's just been, this is a lot of people time with yeah. my people. Yeah. Um, it, in some ways, you know, I can, I can read. I'm free. There was no Sunday school I had to prepare for. So I was free to kind of read what I wanted to in my Bible study and things like that. Yeah. Um, but it showed me just myself away from who people thought I was on the outside because I hear I was in my house all the time. And yeah. so it was, it was a good opportunity to um, kind of evaluate. Sure. Truth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, teaching uh, Sunday school and not having to prep for that right now, but uh, you clearly have um, gifts and desires to teach within the church. And, you know, so many of the women here love your teaching and flock to your teaching uh, I sometimes joke uh, with, you know, when we're having staff meetings and talking about Sunday school classes that I don't want to teach when Tammy Jones is teaching <laughs> because nobody will show up for my class. Uh, all the women will be in Tammy's class and um, you're, you're such a draw and such a great teacher. And I think that's just an amazing gift that you have. Mm -hmm. um, so what does that look like for you? I mean, at Shady Grove or at a previous church, uh, how have you been able to use your uh, teaching gifts um, in the ministry? 
I was well prepared at our previous church by um, two women whose burden was very keenly to prepare women to teach. Mm. Um, we, I mean, they didn't, they did a lot of the teacher training. Um, but I think, you know, even like I said, my teacher, when I was 13, who took me aside, she was, she was such a godly woman. So I've been, my mom has been a teacher to me. So there've been strong women in my life that have taught me. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I don't think it's my teaching. I think it's the platform. Mm-hmm. Like women feel more uninhibited to speak what their questions are or what their ideas are. No offense, gentlemen, but when you're not there sometimes. Mm-hmm. So there's just a freedom in our Sunday school class to yeah. share experiences and questions and things. And um, I, it, it, I love women. I love hearing about women who um, are seeing an impact in their in their ministry or in their church. I love that um, the boys get to benefit from having Bruce and Becca. Mm-hmm. You know, she brings a different perspective to um, the youth group. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, it's beautiful and um, uh, really grateful for how you use your your gifts here. Um, but, uh, so our church, Shady Grove, like many, you know, other Presbyterian and Baptist and Anglican and so on churches, uh, we hold to a view that's sometimes called complementarianism. Uh, but basically what that means is, you know, within the church, especially that we believe that, um, men in particular are called to the office of elder and deacon and, uh, that, that includes pastor. So, you know, preaching ministry and so on. So, um, not having women preachers, not having women elders. Uh, have you found that to be then as a woman with teaching gifts and wanting to teach, uh, have you found that sometimes to be uh, challenging or confusing of maybe navigating that? Like you have these strong and amazing teaching gifts and um, but in the context of, you know, there's kind of, you know, with the elders and preaching ministry um, for men, has that been a difficult for you to kind of walk walk through that or navigate through that or even just figure out for yourself, like, what does that mean, you know, in your life? So from my perspective, no, I have not. But I have to say that that's really pretty much the way I was raised. Mm-hmm. Um, I was never in a place where anybody said, you could be a preacher. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to be a reverend. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that, you know, the role of women in the church is, is very powerful because yeah. who's teaching almost all the Sunday school classes to the children mm-hmm. who's, you know, there's a lot of impact there that women make. So um, I don't think the role of women should be just Sunday school teacher or, or meal maker mm-hmm. necessarily. I think that sometimes um, in conservative circles, people just get scared by, well, if we invite her here, she'll think she's being given this authority, but there's right. a lot of freedom in scripture and there are a lot of women in Acts that helped yeah. Paul pretty hands-on. And yeah. um, so, you know, I, I just feel like we need to maybe calm down a little bit. You yeah. know, it's a hot topic right now, but there, right. women have a lot to offer that um, maybe the church is missing out on because of just this overriding fear of she's going to want the mic, right. you know? And that's, I don't think that's always true. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. And um, I'm not sure how much any of you are following disputes online, but it's almost like every other day, you know, there's um, some big thing happening with like Amy Bird or even Beth Moore or something, you know, of just this, uh, their ulterior motive is to, you know, do away with, you know, and try to become, you know, 
you know, yeah, it's just, and it's just wild. Like, that's not at all what any of these women teachers, these gifted women teachers are saying. I remember being at General Assembly, I uh, was it four or five years ago when uh, we did the women's study report in the PCA, which I think is a magnificent document and really is a generous sort of range of what churches may do in the PCA to kind of adhere to our confessional beliefs. But I remember one woman on the committee said, you know, when people kept getting up and saying, like, this is on a slippery slope, mm-hmm. right? And she said, you know, like, we just want to go the speed limit. Like the speed limit mm-hmm. is 55 and you're telling us to go 35 and you're afraid that if you let us go 55, we're going to go 75 and we're just trying to go 55 in a 55 zone, you know? Sure. And I thought that was a really helpful, you know, analogy and wanting to really then explore what does it look like to faithfully equip uh, women with, you know, with teaching and leadership gifts. So then even for you, what do you think that looks like today? I mean, uh, how can uh, pastors, leaders, elders, how can churches better equip and serve women um, who have, you know, teaching gifts or leadership gifts in the church. Well, invite them to be on a podcast. <laughs> okay, there you go. See, thank you. <laughs> you know, it's, um, I, I really think just asking, asking uh, the question, are you, are you, are, do you feel that your gifts are being used or is there a way, you know, that we could um, include those or something? Yeah. Um, I, I really... I don't think the Bible says that um, that a woman's opinion should never be sought on the elder board or right. in church decisions or anything. That's so, right. um, you know, I think there's a lot of room there within. Yeah. Uh, and there's, you know, because the Bible talks a lot to women and it's Absolutely. not just, uh, you know, older women have have help, not just to younger women, yeah. but to younger people just like older men have help for for all of us as well that's right um that's right and uh i'm trying to remember who uh oh yeah um it is uh, a new book called worthy and i think i may have emailed you about this book several months ago but uh it's worthy and it's celebrating the value and dignity of Mm -hmm. women Mm -hmm. it is the subtitle something like that and it's written by, uh, I think it's Elise Fitzpatrick mm-hmm. and uh, Eric Schumacher, I want to say, is the other author. But in the appendix, he's a he's a pastor and he has, uh, I should show you this, Charlie, I, I had wanted to possibly send it out to some women in the church for myself. But it's an evaluation as a pastor, basically like 30 questions to ask women of how am I doing in relating to women? How am I doing in equipping you? How am I doing in serving you? And um, yeah, I think those are all really important questions and um, really just hearing that feedback, like you said. Um from women. So, well, thank you for sharing all of that. Uh, so last question here before we jump into Mark, uh, like I asked Becca in the first episode, why do you think um, it is important for Christians to study the gospel of Mark today? Well, I think obviously it's a part of God's word and um, the truth of God's word is, you know, we talked in the last episode about the um, the reminder that we need to be in in subjection in the kingdom of god to understand his authority and god's word is given to us to show us what that looks like so it's a part of god's word first of all and um you know we read about matthew 6 33 says seek first the kingdom of god mm-hmm. and i love that verse but sometimes i think what what is that the kingdom mm-hmm. of god or our father who art in heaven hallowed be your name um on earth as it is in heaven it talks about the kingdom of God. Uh, let the kingdom come. Well, what does that look like? So, learning about that, 
And then um, I think it's suitable for right now because of the it talks about suffering mm. and it, it speaks it's straightforward. It's not it just it speaks to us, I mm. think, where we are. A lot of people um, it it you talked about all the facets of the gospel, but this gets to the heart of it. That's right. And um, it's kind of a good summary book for us to read. Yeah. And, and then and then learn more about in the rest of God's word. That's right. I think that's right. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that, uh, Tammy, and opening up a little bit of yourself and your life to us. Um, let's jump into Mark chapter 2. Uh, so Mark chapter 2 begins with this uh, wonderful account of um, you know Jesus' healing, and then the crowds are coming. And so this paralytic and his four friends come, and uh, they have to get to Jesus, right? So he'll be healed. And so what do they do? They uh, cut a hole in the roof and get him down in there. And so uh, what do we learn you know, even being at the beginning of chapter two here, what do we learn from Jesus's treatment and his healing of the paralytic? What about it is maybe surprising to us? And uh, what is Jesus teaching us here? Becca, I'll start with you. Yeah, well, it's surprising because this guy's friends went to all this work to um, so that Jesus could physically heal, heal him. And then Jesus doesn't even seem to notice that he needs physical healing. He goes, right to the deeper need mm. of spiritual healing and forgiveness. Um, so that's what stands out. And I think Jesus is teaching us that um, to not just see our bodies and to not just see what is visible, but to be mm. looking deeper and to see the deeper needs and um, realize that that's what's ultimate and the physical doesn't, it's temporary. It doesn't matter so much yeah. right here, right now. Yeah. But we would, of course, wouldn't say that he was ignorant of, no. or like ignoring the man's physical need. No. <laughs> it seems like perhaps he's using uh, the opportunity for the man's physical mm -hmm. need to point to the deeper, yes. right? With, with the spiritual need. Yes. Um, Cause he's using the healing to confirm mm -hmm. the, the spiritual need. Yeah. Uh, Charlie, what do you think is surprising about this this account and what is jesus teaching us here once again I, you can always you can't go wrong by quoting lewis at least most of the time but, <laughs> um it's just he looks at him and says you know my son or son your sins are forgiven in mark 2 5 and lewis just says about that he told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured he unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was God, mm -hmm. whose laws are broken, whose love is wounded in every sin. Yeah. So, you know, be like if, if Becca punched Tammy and I looked at Becca and said, you know, I forgive you, Tammy would be like, well, what do you mean? Like, you're not <laughs> the one who was hit, you mm -hmm. know? And Jesus just assumes that I, I'm, the, I'm the one who's been offended and, uh, and of course, he's showing prophets can heal, but prophets don't forgive sin. And it's interesting yeah. in the in the New Testament, anytime somebody drives out a demon other than Jesus, they do it in the name of Jesus. Mm. Jesus doesn't have to name himself. He just does it. And the same with forgiving sins. He just does it. He can forgive the sins because he's truly God who can forgive our sins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um I think that's right. And I think it's amazing. Well, even you see the, the response is who, who can, who can claim to do this, right? He's blaspheming, right? Cause who can forgive, but God alone. Um, and I also think there's another part of this where 
we're learning something about genuine faith. You know, we talked about this as a theme in Mark. Um, and here we have um, kind of the crowds, which I think is a common theme in Mark. The crowds are kind of being set up as an obstacle in a way. Of course, Jesus has compassion on the crowds, but uh, here they're sort of the obstacle that must be overcome to get to Jesus. But we see the paralytic and these four friends there. Genuine faith will overcome any obstacle that, that needs to get to Jesus, right? Like, I must see Jesus, right? No matter if it means getting through the crowd and cutting a hole in the roof and coming down, um, must see Jesus. So we have this, uh, you know, rhetorical question and just to kind of uh, make it clear what Jesus is saying here, you know, when he says in verse 9, uh, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? What is the answer to his rhetorical question? And what is he, you know, what is he kind of trying to make plain here with that question? Tammy, start with you. Well, I guess if he can do the one, it's obvious he could do the other. Yeah. Um, he, he, he has the power to forgive sins, which is like an unseen miracle. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah that's. Yeah. I think, you know, as Charlie said earlier, it's a confirmation and, you know, a prophet could heal, uh, but not forgive sins, but he's using the healing to point to his uh, authority. Um, Becca or Charlie, anything to add on that rhetorical question there? They never would have believed him. If he'd have just said your mm-hmm. sins are forgiven, they would never thought that that's possible. But I'm going to heal you first, or I'm going to heal you and show you that that your sins are forgiven as well. Like I have this authority. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I guess I would say it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't prove like that can't be proved here and now. But mm-hmm. when he's saying, um, rise, take up your bed and walk, right. Physical healing that can clearly be proved. And so I guess I wouldn't even be sure how to technically answer the question. Cause it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, but it's not easier to, Obviously, only one person can yeah. do that. So, right. yeah, and that was a great Lewis quote too, Charlie. I think that got, got to the heart of this: is you know, only one person can do this, and someone who claims to forgive sins has to be the one who's been sinned against, right? Otherwise, what authority do they have? You know, I can't, mm-hmm. I can't tell Charlie that all his sins have been forgiven because his sins haven't all been against me, right? Mm-hmm. So, how do I? How can I say that, right? How can I pronounce forgiveness? But the Lord can. Um, and so, yeah, here we have, you know, and, and that's one of the things too, is people tend to think that, um, I remember being in a conversation once with a, in a room full of my, um, skeptic and atheist friends. And they say, you know, where, where does Jesus ever claim to be God? Right. And it's kind of like, well, if you know exactly what he's saying, what he's getting at, it's kind of on every page and every gospel. And it's not just the gospel of John, you know, and, and why do you think, um, you know, why do you think, uh, the religious leaders had such a problem with him and said he's blaspheming and so on? Cause they knew exactly what he was doing. Um, I love this next story, uh, in Mm. verses 13 to 17 with Levi, right? So Jesus calls Levi and then Levi has him over for supper with all his tax collector and sinner buddies. And this is a, a really, you know, I, I explored this more, um, last year, uh, Charlie and I read a book, uh, by Tim Chester called meals with Jesus. And he deals with this a lot. It's really just this beautiful, you know, he goes and he has table fellowship with, the sinners and tax collectors and outcasts, right? And throughout the gospels, you see, you know, who is it that's attracted, right? Who in, in Luke 15 with those parables, what is, how does it start off, right? And the tax collectors and sinners were coming to him. And what is the charge in Matthew against him, right? It's he dines with, 
he dines with tax collectors and sinners, you know? Um, and so it's just, we have this beautiful example of this, right? Coming to eat with Levi. Um, so what does this tell us? What does this story tell us about Jesus? Uh, how is this maybe both deeply convicting and greatly encouraging for us today? And then uh, let's, start, let's start there. So what does this tell us about Jesus and how is, how is this convicting and encouraging for us today? Can I back up for just one? Sure. So in reading, um, I mentioned before that I've been kind of going through the Gospels and reading them differently than I had before. And that is looking at the question and then looking at the answer and seeing it really as a dialogue. And here's a great chapter where there's four questions and they all begin with why. And Jesus is just bringing in this revolution and they're just like, why? Why are you doing this? So the first why is, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. That's the first why in 2.7. This one, the next one is, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So he's just completely blowing their grid or their paradigm. And then the next one is, well, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And the last one, verse 24 why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So every single one of these is going to be like, Jesus is going to blow up a paradigm. Right. And they're all showing that Jesus is full of compassion and mercy. And they're the ones that are uh, gotten, gotten so narrow and stifling and rigid and unloving and ungracious and formal and stiff that... He has to bring in this revolution and they're fighting him at every thing that he's doing. And they're just, why, 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 why? That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, bringing the revolution, it's not that he was tearing down the law, but all this tradition that was being built up around the law and really that kind of tradition they were building is were barriers, right? To bring people in. And so, yeah, he's, he's not defying their law. He's defying their tradition um, that has surrounded the law and they can't comprehend it. It's a, it's a whole new way of thinking, whole new way of living. And I think it's a whole new way of seeing people. Yeah. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners, and he heals sick and dying and lame and leprous and bleeding people. But the really sick people are the ones who are asking the questions and ah, who, ouch. Um, yeah, sorry. But he's, you know, he says he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Yeah. But but who who were the righteous really? Like were the Pharisees as righteous as they, obviously they weren't. But if you had asked them, they would have very quickly told you how righteous they were and how they kept the law and things. Yeah. So his, his perspective on people, obviously, mm. I, I don't have it. Yeah. And it's so, so beautiful, you know, of course, in order to genuinely follow him, uh, he requires you know repentance and faith. But to have table fellowship with Levi and the tax collectors, there was no well. You gotta. I need to hear your repentance first, or you know there, there was. He goes to his house and reclines at table mm -hmm. and enjoys time with them, right? And they enjoy time with him. Mm -hmm. And to think then what what was his yeah what the genuine love he had for these people is just incredible. That's really incredible. Uh, Becca, you have anything to add to that? Yeah, what I, well, I would say that 
like, especially thinking for me, I could so easily, like, Jesus wants to be with these people, and he is attractive to them, but he also, he enjoys spending time with them, and I could see myself so easily reaching out to people who are considered less than or the obvious sinner, but some of that would bound to be wrapped up in, like, me feeling good about myself Mm. or something like that, and it's not that at all. And that wouldn't be, then I would not be attractive to this person that I am right. like supposedly trying to help or right. be friends with. And so the fact that these people are drawn to Jesus, yes, he's going to them, but then they want to be with him. For me, that's... Yeah, it's, it's so beautiful. I, um, I've recently been reading uh, a new book that came out and uh, I think it's a great book on evangelism. Um, Keller actually calls it perhaps the most needed book on evangelism for our day but it's a new book by rebecca manley pippert called stay salt uh very 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 good uh very very good i've really enjoyed it and uh it's actually the first time i've i've heard of her and then i come to find out that she had wrote uh, like a pretty prominent book a couple decades ago out of the salt shaker uh Mm -hmm. and then she has a whole evangelism ministry and some other resources and i still don't under i've asked a couple people like why you know, I've been a Christian for 10 years. I've probably read 15, 20 books on evangelism. It's kind of a passion for me. Why have I never heard of her? Is it because... She's old. Well, <laughs> I don't know if it's that or if it's because she's a woman in a field dominated by men. I don't know. But like she has, she's not quoted, right? But I've been reading Stay Salt. I've been reading now Out of the Salt Shaker. And both are very, very good. I've really enjoyed them. But there's this quote from Out of the Salt Shaker that jumped out to me that gets at this. And I posted this on Facebook a couple weeks ago. And I just love this. She said, She said this. She said... What do you do with a man who is supposed to be the holiest man who has ever lived and yet goes around talking with prostitutes and hugging lepers? What do you do with a man who not only mingles with the most unsavory people, but actually seems to enjoy them? The religious accused him of being a drunkard, a glutton, and having tacky taste in friends. It is a profound irony that the Son of God visited the planet and one of the chief complaints against him was that he was not religious enough. I think that is just a profound quote. I love that. And I think you see that here in these opening chapters of Mark is the complaint is really, if you can sum it up, is you're not religious enough like us, right? What are you doing? Why? Why are you doing this? Um, and clearly it's because he loves people, right? He loves these people. Um, so a question I have for myself and for us is where do we put ourselves? Mm. Like in the verse, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then, Charlie, where would you see yourself if you were in, you know, sitting in this crowd? Would you be among the righteous or would you put yourself at table? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I was just thinking of how um, I've responded to, I've been asked to do a memorial service for somebody that uh, I, I haven't met. I'm doing it this Sunday after next. And my parents love this family. Mm. And... I don't know if any of them are believers. And my first thought was to kind of recoil, like to my mom and dad, like, why are you making me do this? I don't know them. But I realized my parents love these people. And out of love for my parents, I'm going to do this. I shouldn't, but my flesh was still, you know, wrestling with. And this is just a great reminder of what an incredible opportunity. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, to present the gospel. Um, and so I just need to be thankful and have a spirit of Jesus rather than the spirit of the flesh. Be salt. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, it can be, I think, one thing I've noticed in my own life, uh, you know, my own Christian life is the longer I'm a Christian, the harder it can be for me to identify with, um, you know, I've been a Christian for about 10 years now, and the harder it can be for me to identify with being on that outside state. Um, and so I can be, uh, you know, kind of your question, where do I see myself? Um, the real answer is that, uh, I ought to see myself as a sinner who wants to have table fellowship with him, but it's really easy for me to start writing people off now mm -hmm. and not to mm -hmm. be, you know, to, this isn't going to, you know, to maybe even, I think Becca kind of was getting at this earlier, like to see people as projects and, you know, and all of a sudden I'm just kind of having this very pragmatic approach to the Christian life or to my ministry and not this generous, open, open heart, open life, um, mentality that Jesus clearly had. Um, so, uh, in these next two in verses 18 to 28, we have uh, two more why questions, as Charlie said. Um, and we see the Pharisees trying to chat, trap Jesus, right? Uh, they see, he's trying to, they're trying to trap him with, uh, questions of fasting. And then they try to trap him with, uh, questions about, uh, the Sabbath. And so when they're trying to trap him on uh, fasting, he responds with these parables, uh, very, very quick parables, right? Uh, teaching about wedding guests and bridegrooms and wineskins and uh, garments. And so uh, what, uh, what is he teaching here in um, this first part here about fasting? What is he teaching and how might this shape our own understanding of spiritual disciplines like fasting today? So what is he teaching uh, here and then how might that shape our own understanding of spiritual disciplines like fasting? Becca, we'll start with you. Okay. Well, I would say, um, especially when he's talking about being guests at a wedding, he's he's the bridegroom. Um, That's right. And so fasting is a sign of mourning um, and, and done in anticipation. Um, but he's saying, now I'm here. Why are right. you mourning? You don't need to mourn. Um, and so it's, it's something that's, um, yeah, that we're to take joy in. So why would they be doing that? And there will be a time he won't be here. Um, and so then it will be the time for them to um, fast and mourn. But I also, and this is kind of a question, because then when he follows that up with like old or new wine can't be put into the old wine skins because they would burst. So Jesus has now come and he's inaugurated this new kingdom and we are made new and everything has changed. So does that mean, like when, when was the period where fasting should happen? Was that just when mm -hmm. he died and before he rose again, like was it those three days or is that still now? I don't know. Cause I would say the spiritual disciplines have, have changed the weight of them. The purpose of them are, are mm -hmm. different now and we're not called to do it in the same way. Yeah. But I just, <laughs> yeah, well, that's a great, that's a great question. Tammy, what do you think about that? Oh, I was really waiting for your answer. No, no, no. We're uh, going around the table here. That's a great question. Um, no, I think that the purpose is changed. I mean, our spirit, the spiritual disciplines now, it's for freedom, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's for us. It's not for us to earn anything. Um, yeah, I don't have any other. I don't know. Yeah. Charlie? I think... Um, it is interesting as you look at fasting throughout scripture that there is definitely more of an emphasis in, you know, with Esther and Ezra. Ezra is constantly fasting. 
and there's a weeping and mourning over national sins, corporate sins, mm-hmm. um, and and certainly Esther. So when there's a big occasion, like man, fast and pray. I'm going to go talk to the king, and if I perish, I perish. We don't see fasting. Um, I don't think after Jesus. I mean, the book from the book of Acts on. I I can't think of a reference to fasting. I don't think it means don't fast. I'm not very good at fasting, um, but I do think there are times where the church, and and particularly for individuals, when something big um, is happening, to you know, to uh, to say before I make this decision or before you know something is so big that I'm just going to fast and just really focus uh, prayer for that. Um, and it might be skipping a meal or skipping two meals or skipping for a day. I've, n- I've never done more than 30 hours, I think. is like, I just not a, it's not, I'm probably not definitely one of my weaker disciplines. Um, but I have seen the fruit of it. I've seen where people have fasted and prayed for, um, We have, I can remember particularly with the church I was at before, and there was a young girl that she, they had to, take her heart and move it from four chambers to two mm. and basically she had to have a frog heart the way she was born and and they were losing her and her, her she, the vows just kept bleeding and this group fasted and prayed and that the more they prayed they just became more determined yeah to not let this girl go and sure enough that was the turning point in this little girl's life and she's still alive today Hmm. Um, so I do think God blesses it and yeah. uses it. So. Yeah, I uh, I mean, early on in COVID, I mean, this was you know week three or four. We um, did some church members did a fast because we had a couple of church members you know got sick with COVID and then uh, we you know there was so much we didn't know at the time. And so for me, there's been a couple of times where I'm like I and then I just I couldn't we couldn't go near those families, but we couldn't go near anybody. And so I was like I don't know what else to do. Let's fast, right? I just remember getting on that call the next day after we did that and some people really were just for some people they've been Christians for a long time and I never fasted before but did it this time and they a few people were in tears because like I had such sweet devotion with the Lord and I learned so much about my own selfishness um, that they were just like really moved by it and I'm like moved now like thinking about it and so I do think you know Becca to your point like I think perhaps um you know, pre-Christ fasting was a mourning, waiting, and certainly we are still waiting for the Lord to return, but now it's a, when we fast, we kind of look back on Christ and look to Christ uh, in devotion and wanting to increase our fellowship with him and our dependence on him and our time of fellowship with him, not to earn anything from him, um, but to increase our dependence on him. I, I am the, I'm not a regular faster at all, but I did, um, uh, I've shared a little bit of this story before, like from the pulpit, but, um, you know, towards the end of seminary, um, there was a decent prolonged period there where, that, where I was pretty convinced, like it's time to just give up pursuing ministry. And, um, just gonna, you know, I started applying back to, you know, kind of places in the, in the workplace and I was getting ready to give up, you know, finishing seminary and all of that. And I just didn't know what to do. And so I did a 30 day, uh, liquid fast. And that was Whoa, tough. That was tough. So I had to like do a lot of research to make sure I would, you know, so I had to have these supplements and stuff to, mm-hmm. uh, for it. But one thing, one particular challenge with that was, uh, I started out doing juice fast 
And like within a few days, I was like, it's everything's so sweet. <laughs> so I needed salt. And so I, I kid you not, um, I started uh, throughout the day having tablespoons of hot sauce uh, just because I needed something like to cleanse my palate of all the sugar. You know, and then I started doing a lot more broth and all that. But it was it was a time of like I have it was I have nothing else that I can do. Right. I don't know what else to do but to fast and try and rely on the Lord. And uh, yeah, I learned a lot about myself during that time. So um, that's awesome. One other thing I would say about this passage is just as you said earlier about how the deity of Jesus is on every page. Jesus, the replies to the questions are always fascinating, and he basically says, I'm the bridegroom. Well, who is the bridegroom in Scripture? God is the husband. That's right. And we're the bride. And Jesus shows up and says, I'm the bridegroom. And it's just that, bam! I mean, yeah. it, it is a powerful statement of deity. Yeah. That's one note that I had as well is, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, the bridegroom is never connected to the messianic expectation. It's connected to, the, to God. Right. And so when Christ is describing himself as the bridegroom, it's not a messianic thing. It's a it's a God connection that he's claiming. And people, you know, clearly the religious leaders could make that connection um, because in the Old Testament, it was always speaking of the Lord uh, as the bridegroom for his people. Um, uh, you know, Becca, you were saying earlier about you know him as the bridegroom. I think another thing we see then is if he's the bridegroom and he's, you know, a wedding is a time to kind of live it up and to celebrate. Well, in effect, then he's kind of describing his mission and his ministry as a wedding, right? And as a time to be with the bridegroom, right? Um, and I think that's another interesting takeaway that I hadn't really thought about is not just um, who he's, what he's claiming about himself, but also his mission and his ministry, right? This is a time to be with the bridegroom. Uh, and there's going to be a time where that's going to be over, right? And he's going to go away. Um, so... What about the uh, what about the patch uh, and the wineskin? So the garment and the wineskin. What is uh, what's Jesus teaching us there, Tammy? What do you think about that? Oh, I love that. I love the um, picture. You know, going back even to um, verse forty-four from chapter one, how he brings the Old Testament into it. You know, we you just don't the the old wineskin and the old cloth they don't fit anymore it's not that there's no place for them he doesn't say get rid of all the old wine bring in the new because i'm here mm -hmm. but he, um don't don't try to put the new in the old it doesn't work it bursts and mm -hmm. so he he is the new mm -hmm. and he doesn't fit into anything that the pharisees um were offering yeah, yeah it's kind of like what charlie was saying earlier about these new this new revolution this new paradigm Right, breaking in. Um, uh, you can't simply attach Jesus onto Torah, or you can't simply attach Jesus onto Pharisaic tradition. Right, it can't just be something that's added into uh, the way we do things. Right, you can't just simply. And then I think you know uh, a couple steps of application from that for us today would be: you can't simply just add on Jesus into your current agenda and your current life. Right, he's not just an add-on. To how things are going but it's something new right mm -hmm. following jesus means something new for us and uh should be something distinct from you know those who don't who don't know christ well looking at um uh going in then to uh the next uh, account here where the pharisees are trying to trap him on the sabbath um and he ends it's this wonderful um teaching here on the sabbath really one of the, probably the most important passages for our understanding of the Sabbath. Um, 
but he ends here in verse 27 and 28 and he says the sabbath was made for man not man for the sabbath so the son of man is lord even of the sabbath what is the point of the sabbath number one and number two what does it mean that jesus is lord of the sabbath so what is the point of the sabbath and number two what does it mean that jesus is lord of the sabbath tammy Oh, man, I was just saying, I hope he doesn't start with uh. me. <laughs> um, okay, so, well, the point of the Sabbath is rest. And and it was not ordained right here for the first time. God ordained it at creation, right? He rested on the seventh day. Um, and then the Lord of the Sabbath, I, I think he's, uh, again, putting his authority over all these different things that were already in place. Um, he goes on, you know, he talks, him, uh, he talks about himself as the Lord who can forgive sins in um, the last chapter. So now he's the Lord of the Sabbath. I just feel like he's putting himself up. Then the next we see he's the Lord over these diseases. You know, he yeah. just, he is the Lord of everything. Yeah. Uh, the kingdom, you know, back in chapter one. Yeah. Um, I know there's more to it, but that's that was my first take was him just putting himself in in that position of authority yeah. as the Lord of the Sabbath. Yeah, Charlie, what do you want to add to that? Well, I think the context is interesting because for us today, we tend to be pretty loose on the Sabbath and not rigid, and so it was just the opposite in this context where they were very rigid, and what uh, Jesus is actually appealing to is an exception clause he's saying look at david and here david was in need and was hungry he entered the house of god in the time of abiathar the high priest and ate and drank of the bread of the presence which is not lawful he's saying david broke the law and david's not faulted for that so i too am breaking the law according to your traditions and don't you see that i'm Lord, even of the Sabbath. So I'm Lord over everything, even over the Sabbath. And so he is actually appealing to an exception where somebody violated the law in the Old Testament and saying, this is what I'm doing here. And so I kind of, uh, depending on you know where you come from in your background, I mean, I was at a very, very conservative seminary in Greenville, South Carolina. <laughs> And uh, a lot of Bob Jones influence. Mm -hmm. and uh, But um, I can remember being a part of a Sunday afternoon Sabbath study. And if we, if the guy leading it, if somebody started talking about football or anything during the week, what was considered worldly recreations, um, it was considered a violation of the larger catechism. And so, you know, one of the things that I posed when I was being ordained as an as an exception clause or, or exception to the confession was a larger catechism says that the Sabbath or Lord's day is to be sanctified by a holy resting all the day, not only from such works as are at all times sinful, but even from such worldly employments and recreations as are on other days lawful and making it our delight to spend the whole day, except so much as taken up in works of necessity and mercy and the private and public exercises of God's worship. Now, if I were to take that and apply it to Jesus, I would say Jesus is a Sabbath breaker because he is 
enjoying worldly recreation on a leisure walk where they're picking up grains and they're eating them. Now, did Jesus actually violate the Sabbath? No, but he's blowing up the paradigm. And I think even in our tradition, most guys now take exception to this because they see, well, even Jesus would have been uh, called on the carpet for, for this. But but I think in our context, we now tend to be much more loose and we kind of have to look at it from another angle. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about that more here at the end. We'll really probably push some buttons and talk about how to apply <laughs> the Sabbath and the Lord's Day here. It's, it's, it's tough. Um, and I think the confession is helpful, but also it can have its limitations, kind of as you said, with um, exception clauses. But here, um, you know, it really seems like uh, just like with he was talking about with the um, fasting and the wineskins and and so on, he's really trying to show us that the law um, the law is not meant to be this burdensome yoke, right? Of uh, how do I get in good standing with God? Uh, but it's to be enjoyed as a gift, and uh, it's to be our friendly guide. This is a, a term that um, Richard Gaffin has in one of his books. It's to be our friendly guide in our life with the Lord. Um, and I think you see in the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, uh, that when you are looking at the law, uh, from the perspective of how do I get in good standing with God, then you're very concerned with detail. Right. And even today, I think sometimes we can be like, just tell me what I got to do. Right. Like I understand like, but you know, pastor, teacher, just tell me what I got to do. And you see the Pharisees here, like very concerned with detail about the Sabbath. But Jesus is, again, he's kind of blowing that up and he's saying, you know, um, I'm not trying to be detail-oriented here. I'm trying to show you that the Sabbath is a gift. Right? The Sabbath is a gift to enjoy rest and fellowship and worship right, with your God. And I am Lord of the Sabbath, and that, that rest, that gift, you'll, you're only going to understand a proper orientation to that gift in relationship with me because I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Right? And so it's only going to make sense if we understand that in Christ we can rest from all our religious striving. It's only going to make sense if we understand that Christ is the one that we worship and that all these gifts and blessings um, can be found in him. And so, you know, Charlie, you, you brought up, uh, this is kind of where I wanted to end in thinking about this Sabbath, because we do need to think about this from a different perspective. Whereas uh, maybe um, in Jesus's day, you know, there was, it was too much concern with kind of that like detail oriented um, tradition and around the law. But in our day, I think, yeah, we definitely do play fast and loose with spiritual disciplines, with the Sabbath, and and so on and so we wrestle with this idea of sabbath rest of the lord's day on sunday um and so what do you all think the bible teaches us about christian practice of the sabbath today and in what way might that challenge our current kind of cultural assumptions about work rest productivity or even our identity uh so becca we'll start with you on this one yeah um well, I think we are clearly called to take a day of rest. And like we've been saying, since the Sabbath is a gift, um, the gift is to spend time in God's presence. And when I think of him as Lord of the Sabbath, it's a reminder that taking that break can be hard because, and I think even in terms of this world, we tend to identify um with the work that we do and the work that we get done. Um, and so it's taking a break of that and it's a reminder, it's a call for us to remember that our primary identity is what we trust in and that needs to be Christ. Um, and so there's that part of it, but then there's also um, 
this idea that, um, lost it. <laughs> um, I guess, um, I'm going to need to come back. That's okay. You, when you find your thought, we'll come back to you. Uh, Tammy, what do you think? Like, what, what do you think the Bible teaches us about Christian practice of Sabbath today? And how does that kind of confront, uh, yeah, our cultural assumptions about productivity, work, rest, identity? The reminder that I need rest is a reminder that I'm human. I'm mm -hmm. not the Messiah. I'm not God. Um, so I, the world's not going to fall apart if I take a rest on Sunday. That's right. And neither is my family. Mm -hmm. You know, they're in fact, um, when I think about how beneficial it would be to my children to see me resting, mm -hmm. I'd say that that greatly outweighs mm -hmm. the amount of profit it will gain that they will gain from me working again on Sunday, you yeah. know, but um so there's this Messiah complex that I think we can mm. get about that I can get like I, I can't stop I can't stop, um, and and then just you know it's interesting Becca and I both kind of grew up in in a Christian home mm -hmm. and I don't think Sabbath rest was always considered a gift it was mm -hmm. considered something we had to do kind of like going to church you know yeah. it wasn't like hey we get to go to church today, but all those things that were almost viewed as chores. Our law are they're not they're not laws given because uh, because God's sitting up there going you'll do this and you'll do this and you know they're gifts to me yeah. and the more I see it as a gift and understand that in Jesus I can celebrate the Sabbath it is a gift um, and it's not in so much did I get my nap or did I mow my lawn but it's how much do I understand Jesus you know that's that's where true Sabbath rest is. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to say it looks a lot different for yeah. everybody. Yeah. And maybe it's not even on Sunday. How does Charlie or Ben, how do you guys get a, a Sabbath rest on Sunday? Yeah. So maybe it's um, some another day or, and then one more thing, I think it's an internal state of mind more so than mm. I'm going to lie down because we can lie down and not really rest. You know, yeah. we can be planning sure. our, everything we need to get done or whatever. Sure. Yeah, Charlie, uh, that, that's all good. Um, Tammy, uh, Charlie, you brought up a minute ago, you know, the confession of faith and the larger catechism. And I do think, you know, um, I, so I took the exception clause on that, right? And spe especially on that phrase, uh, you know, the whole day, what is it? Um, mm -hmm. You know, all the day or something like that in the confession. It's like, that's, that's the thing that's going beyond a little bit what scripture says, right? Um, at the same time, though, we do have to be careful. It, I, so I'm on uh, the credentials committee for our presbytery, which means, uh, you know, helping examine um, guys to become ordained as pastors. And so we have one thing we have to consider is their exceptions. And most most guys do take exception. Uh, but some guys who come through when they don't take exception, we always kind of press them of like, OK, so what does this look like for you? And I've seen some guys that they can't get through an explanation without crying because it's so beautiful to them. Right. That like I have this gift of rest um, and, you know that's kind of where I want to be on the Sabbath is really seeing it as this devotional. I can't believe the Lord would give me um, this gift. And so while we might say, okay, yeah, the confession of faith probably goes, Jesus might have a little bit of a problem with <laughs> some of that and maybe going too far. I think we do have to wrestle today too with uh, man, like, you know, going back to that wine skin, uh, old, new, 
where the old the old wineskins in Jesus's day that he was addressing was um, uh, you know religious tradition and all of that and saying I can't fit into your tradition. Well, today I think our old wineskins would be all of our activity, right? Work mm-hmm. creep, right? Now we're we're working more and because we can work remotely, mm-hmm. there people are. Our jobs are expecting us to work on Sunday and we have all these activities and we have, you know, we got errands and catch up for the day and all that stuff. And we have to kind of, I think, evaluate, well, have I just tried to make this an add-on or am I really trying to orient? And that's harder for some than others, like especially if you have a, you know, we've kind of called a job of necessity, like being a nurse or a police officer or something like that. Obviously, there's a lot of things to think through, um, but it is something I think uh, every Christian ought to seriously wrestle with and uh come out what that looks like for them and, and their family for our family uh we do everything we can you know you asked how do how do we keep sabbath um we do everything we can not to have to do any kind of errands or shopping or um, even cooking on sunday and if we do if and uh, you know we order all our groceries through instacart and stuff nowadays uh, and so if we do end up having to like oh we just we didn't we tried our best we didn't get to um or if we do decide to go get like takeout or something which uh sometimes happens uh, we go above and beyond to tip very, very generously. Uh, that's kind of our, if, if we are going to ask someone else to work for us on the Lord's day, then we are going to make it a blessing and a gift for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just like another, another task that somebody else has to do for us. Right. And so that's one way that we try to, um, mark out the Lord's day as, as something different. So, um, um, I was just thinking that, I think it's hard to determine what rest means because I think a lot of people would say, and I think more and more people just not even within Christian circles are recognizing the need for rest, but they kind of take rest as like, oh, don't do anything. And I don't think that's like, like just sitting on the couch all day is probably not how we're called to spend our Sabbath rather in rest. And that is, it's good. You need to take breaks like that. Um, but I guess, yeah, yeah, I think, and I'm not sure I'm still figuring out how to fill your time. I like to do things with people. That's a big thing for me is I want to spend time with family, with friends, um, resting with them. Um, so I don't, I'm not just resting by doing nothing. Um, but I don't know. I just, it's the question i have of what does it actually look like to rest or what counts sure. as rest and fruitful rest yeah yeah charlie it's any thoughts on remember that? that it's a gift i mean he says the sabbath was made for man not man for the sabbath so if you're binding yourself with things that are you know now you're uh not experiencing true rest mm-hmm. and the the rest ultimately is is a spiritual rest but i do think it's a day of Dedication, not a day of vegetation, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I mean it's it's hard for us as pastors um, to Sunday's a very often a busy day. Mm-hmm. I I probably I don't recommend what I do to other pastors. I get up at five a.m. I've worked on the message all week, but it really kind of comes to fruition on Sunday morning at five a.m. I wouldn't recommend that to anybody, <laughs> but that's just how it works for me. So by the time I get home from noon, I've already been going at it for seven hours. So if I catch a little nap in there, those are just wonderful. If I can actually, it rarely ever happens, but if it does, those have been some of the most holy naps where it's like gravity increases 
Um, and then typically there's stuff to do of in the evening of making calls or doing counseling or mm-hmm. being a part of this Puritan study, which is really good. So we've actually, on, with the church, we purposely have not had the church office open on Mondays. So we just encourage people on Mondays to take take a down day. And um, one of the things that's been helpful for me um there's an older pastor in the area that um, loves to cycle, and so do I. And recently, uh, we kind of, sim- some similar life stage, his dad recently died. Um, my dad's not doing well. and um, But he's just been really, we'll just ride together, and we'll ride out towards uh, Sugarloaf Mountain, and we'll do like, you know, 30, 35-mile bike ride, and it just... It has been so helpful just to get out in God's creation and just, you know, and sometimes we, we talk shop about stuff in our church. Our churches are very different. Some of our philosophies are very different. Some of our theology is, is somewhat different. Um, but he loves the Lord, and he's been just a blessing to me. And I really enjoyed those times and consider that, even though I'm exercising, but I consider getting out mm-hmm. in nature just to be really something that is really helpful for me on, on Mondays. Yeah. What did you say uh, earlier, Charlie? It's not a day of vegetation, but what was it? Dedication. Dedication. Yeah. I think that's actually a really, you know, if not a little bit, uh, what, what's sort of like a more short way to maybe kind of get to what Becca was asking. Um, and even Tammy kind of indicating like a heart mm-hmm. posture. And, you know, you don't want to all say, well, it's just a heart posture, so I can justify all these other things. Uh, but it is because it, you're right. It's not just I'm going to go sit on the couch and play video games or watch football. Although, like, okay, if that's genuine rest, mm-hmm. right? But uh, really finding that um, rest rolled, in the she Lord. She rolled her eyes over there. I saw. <laughs> <laughs> really finding that rest in the Lord. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, the other thing, Charlie, you brought up difficulty as pastors. The other thing I think is even addressing this topic because it kind of gets into people, you know, you don't want to tell people how to live their lives or uh, what they have to do, but you do want to seriously encourage people to really think about this, like what this looks like for you and your family. Uh, I would just give two book recommendations that have been really helpful uh, for me. If anyone listening wants uh, to follow up on this more, Uh, one is actually by a Jewish uh, rabbi who, uh, you know, has just thought a lot about this. And I I thought it was really helpful uh, hearing this from his perspective. His name is, uh, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, very, very good book on the Sabbath. I think it might just be called the Sabbath, um, but very, very well-known book on the Sabbath. It was very, very helpful. And then uh, Walter Brueggemann's book, um, Sabbath as Resistance, very, very, very good. And I just want to summarize here as we're ending uh, a couple things that he says in that book uh, about the Sabbath. He says um, he defines the Sabbath as both resistance and alternative. He says it is resistance because practicing the the Lord's Day is an insistence that our life is not defined by the production and consumption of goods. He says that such an act of resistance requires not just enormous intentionality, but also communal reinforcement uh, where you are joined with the lives of other believers who are committed to keeping the Lord's Day and living distinctly in the world. He also says it's an alternative in that it is an awareness and practice of the idea that we are on the receiving end of the gifts of God. And this is a hard posture for us, he says, because we like to initiate and control our lives and we do not expect or want a gift to be given because we would rather achieve, accomplish, and possess. And so instead to adopt the posture that, uh, this alternative posture that we are on the receiving end of the gifts of God. I think that's just a really 
kind of big scope picture that I like to think through is resistance and alternative. And I would just encourage both those books for anyone listening. Well, uh, thank you all for tuning in to Mark chapter two of this podcast. We'll be back uh, next week with Mark chapter three with a couple new guests. Uh, thank you to uh, Becca and Tammy in particular for joining us for these uh, first two episodes. And we look forward to uh, continuing on with this podcast in the weeks ahead. Thanks, everybody.